I'm very grateful for the opportunity to stand before you this morning. Um, a special thank you to Dr. Gregory and to the faculty for inviting me to be here. Uh, it is an honor to stand at this pulpit. I want to tell you about a man I've been reading about some recently. Uh, I'm going to describe some things to you, see if anything is recalled to mind. This man was born the 17th of 19 children, only eight of whom survived. As a child, he was sickly, but he dreamed of being a poet, and he did follow that dream. He wrote poetry his whole life and published six books. He was attracted to all sorts of machinery as well and had magnificent skills as a designer. He was a lifelong hunter, even into his 90s, but he's primarily remembered as an inventor and as a highly decorated military man, rising to the rank of general. The most famous of his more than 150 inventions premiered in 1947, quickly gained notoriety both at home and abroad. As of 2009, over 100 million had been produced. And manufacturing continues today at the rate of about 1 million per year, it's estimated. Amazingly, this groundbreaking design was not patented until the year 1997. That's 50 years after it was first put into production. Even more amazing than that is that the inventor never made any money at all from the sale of his invention. In fact, he always said he did it for his country. Have you guessed? The name of the inventor is Mikhail Kalishnikov. He's the Russian general best known for inventing the AK-47 rifle. You may have seen in the news that Mikhail died on December 23rd of last year at the age of 94 years old. Most of his life, Kalishnikov was defensive about these rifles that he invented, and he had good reason to be, because the Russian military was not the only organization that has made wide use of the AK-47. His design has had worldwide appeal, and it's received particularly bad press because it's been a favorite of terrorist groups, criminals, and child soldiers. Mikhail wasn't any happier about any of that than you or I are. Originally, he wanted to build agricultural machinery, he said. He blamed the Nazis for making him become a gun designer. He even said once that he would rather have built a lawnmower. After Kalishnikov's death, a letter surfaced showing that near the end of his life, he'd started to question how he'd used his talents. At 91 years old, he went to church for the very first time, ultimately believed and was baptized. He wrote to the patriarch of the Russian Orthodox Church in May 2012. I want to read part of that letter to you. He writes, My spiritual pain is unbearable. I keep having the same unsolved question. If my rifle claimed people's lives, that can it be that I, a Christian and an Orthodox believer, was to blame for their deaths? 
The longer I live, the more this question drills itself into my brain, and the more I wonder why the Lord allowed man to have the devilish desires of envy, greed, and aggression. He signed the letter, A Slave of God, the designer Mikhail Kalishnikov. As a pastor, I am thankful that I'm not the one that had to answer that particular letter. But the questions that he raises are not all that strange when you look below the surface. Every one of us has done things that later on we question. We've all had times in our lives when something we said or did had unintended consequences of one sort or another. I have never met a single person who hasn't wondered why God allows people who the Bible says are created in his image to have devilish desires. Now, as I wrestled with Mikhail Kalishnikov's words, my mind wandered to the story of Paul in the Bible. Now, this, this is a man whose actions had some really unintended consequences. He's also a man who knew a lot about the radical sort of grace and forgiveness that God gives to his people. I want us to explore the story of Paul through the lens of this passage in 1 Timothy this morning. And the the central truth for us as we gather is this, that God offers truth and grace to everyone. We first meet Paul as a young man standing outside the walls of Jerusalem, watching over the belongings of those who were stoning Stephen, who became the first Christian martyr. Stephen was a miracle worker and one of the leaders of the fledgling Christian church, and he's being executed for his faith outside the walls of Jerusalem in the same place and by the same people who conspired to kill Jesus only a short time ago. Paul looks pretty grim. But in his eyes, Paul's a righteous man. He's not persecuting, but cleansing the city of heretics and idolaters. Paul catches the spirit of the Jewish leadership, and he begins to make door-to-door visits through the city. I imagine it was not to pass tracts and share the good news of Yahweh. Looking back on that time... Paul describes himself in 1 Timothy as a blasphemer and a persecutor and a violent aggressor. He says that he acted ignorantly and in unbelief. Now that's the sort of thing we don't allow others to say about us, but it can be the sort of thing that we say to ourselves about ourselves. We can be our own worst critics. Have you ever had one of those moments where you're just going about your day as usual, minding your own business, and all of a sudden you remember something that you did, say, ten years ago, and just kick yourself over it? Maybe that's just me. But sometimes I can really beat myself up. And so I want to tell you about one of my earliest memories. When I was about five years old, I think, I was following my dad around uh, and trying to be like him. My father's here with us this morning. I'm so thankful for that. 
I, uh, I discovered in, in this, these escapades of following my father around that he had a cabinet next to his bed in my parents' bedroom. And every day when he came home, he would uh, pull out his billfold and his keys and anything else that he had in his pockets, and he'd put them inside the dresser. Uh, next to the little organizer that he had in his cabinet, uh, there was also a, a plain tin can, uh, like you would have if you uh, tore the label off of a can of green beans and stuck that in there. Uh, if he had any spare change, my father would take the change and throw that into the can. Now, to my five-year-old self, this shiny can and those shiny coins with their little designs pressed in on them, the clinking sound they made as he tossed them in after a long day at work, this, these were fascinating things. I like to look at the coins. There were thick uh, nickels with smooth sides and pennies with their odd copper color. Those, the nickels and the pennies, those were my favorites. I liked the grubby smell that they left on my hands after I played with them for a while. I like to let them fall through my fingers and clink back down into the can. So one day... I dug into my father's cabinet and as he was working down in our basement out of the room and I took a handful of the coins and I just I stuck them in my pocket. I quickly realized, though, that there's only really one person in the house that I can share this discovery with. My father. And so I made my way down to the basement and waltzed over to my dad, proudly displayed, see, look what I found. Now, I need, I need to pause at this point to tell you that my father's a very kind person. He's always been soft-hearted toward me. I, his firstborn, have always been a people-pleaser myself. So I can't even remember a time when I was punished harshly. So how does my dad respond to his adorable five-year-old little child? I don't know what you're thinking, but he just, he just asked me the simple question, did you get those coins out of my can? My response to this was to start bawling uncontrollably. I mean, I'm talking deep sobs, there's, there's drool and snot bubbles. I mean, it was ugly. He just asked me a simple question. But I felt so guilty because I'd been caught with something that I knew wasn't mine, that I knew I had taken without permission. I hadn't even had time to enjoy it yet. For my friends, I, I still won't touch that can. That's the sort of memory that would just kind of hit me occasionally while I was minding my own business. Uh, walking to school or cleaning up around the house, and I would just feel the old pang of guilt and shame rise up in my chest. But here's my point. We all have guilt and shame in our lives. We all feel the pain of past mistakes, and more often than not, it's something that has much bigger consequences than the five-year-old carrying his stolen loot from one room in the house to the other. The temptations that we face are often far less acute. 
I'm not saying that I don't pick up change, uh, loose change, when I find it lying around. I I know what it's like to be a broke college uh, student. But we face other types of temptations as well. Borrowing a few paragraphs from the internet or adjusting our margins just that teensy bit at 3 a.m. to meet the length requirement on the term paper that we started the day before it was due. Ruthlessly tearing down one of our peers to win the discussion about whatever theological topic happens to be in style that week. Humans have a penchant for leaving lots of little disasters in their wake. That includes misplaced zeal for God that does more harm than help to the cause of Christ. It is imperative that we recognize our need for relief from guilt and shame. And Christ does offer us relief. But for us to receive it, we must first confess that we have acted out of ignorance or aggression toward God. We all need God's grace and truth to make us whole again. Now that cocktail of ignorance, aggression, and woundedness is where Paul was during his days as a persecutor following the stoning of Stephen. Between Stephen's death, the end of Acts chapter 7, and the beginning of Acts chapter 9, Paul manages to so thoroughly comb Jerusalem for Jesus' followers, that he wants to take his show on the road. He approaches the Sanhedrin as a bona fide Christian bounty hunter, seeking a commission to root out the church in Damascus, and with letters in hand, he strikes out on the long north road to Damascus. He had a perfect clarity of purpose. He was intent to serve his God by Stomping the cancer of Christianity from growing any further. He did not want it to progress through the Jewish faithful. But then something happens. Paul is struck blind. I imagine that in those three days, Paul replayed this vision of Jesus over and over and over again in his mind. How long do you think it took Paul to recognize that the physical blindness he now had corresponded to his spiritual blindness. It's a remarkable thing. Paul sat alone in the darkness for three days asking, how could this be? I imagine it was much like Jesus disciples after his crucifixion but on that third day Jesus returned and sent Ananias to show him the light in Acts 8 Luke goes on to tell us that Paul immediately started preaching Jesus as the son of God in Damascus and he did it with such vigor that he himself became an object of persecution Paul knew that preaching truth comes with a cost from his witness of Stephen's death He was not the sort of man to do things halfway. And when the church at Antioch prayed and worshipped in Acts 13, the Holy Spirit called on them to commission Paul and Barnabas to take the gospel west. 
Paul reflects on his conversion and calling in this passage in 1 Timothy. Verse 14 tells us that the grace of Christ was abundant toward him. And in verse 16, it was precisely precisely because Paul was the foremost among sinners that Christ chose him to demonstrate his patience and mercy. If Christ could choose to forgive Paul, then we have no excuse for thinking he wouldn't save us too. In 1 Timothy 1.15, Paul could just as, as easily have written these words. It is a trustworthy statement deserving full acceptance that Christ Jesus gave me amazing grace. How sweet the sound that saved a wretch like me. I once was lost, but now am found. Was blind, but now I see. The song has become so familiar to us that we often don't even think about the words when we sing it. John Newton, who wrote these famous words, knew the grace that he sang about. He was a broken-hearted slave ship captain turned clergyman. He was one who influenced William Wilberforce to fight the cause of abolition. In the British Parliament in the late 18th and early 19th centuries, and even even before this contemporary popularity, Amazing Grace, this song, was an anthem for the abolitionist movements in both countries, in both England and the United States, and also became an anthem for the civil rights movement. It was even sung by Native Americans on the Trail of Tears. One of Newton's biographers estimates that Amazing Grace is sung about 10 million times a year today. And it retains the same power that it had the first time it was heard. I don't know about you, but almost every time that I hear this song sung or that I sing it myself, there's, I almost have tears well up in my eyes. Sometimes I do have tears that well up. That sort of emotional reaction is apparently fairly common. Bill Moyers in 1990 did a documentary on this song. He said that in some way it unifies people. No matter where they come from, and nobody really seems to know whether it's the lyrics or the tune that affects us so deeply. Now my theory is that part of the power of this song is that it helps us to bear our vulnerability to others. As we sing it together, it becomes a corporate confession for us that we are wretched, that we do need amazing grace. We're finally able to get past our inhibitions and just say that we want God's forgiveness from all of our failures when we're finally able to say those words, to sing those words, then we have the freedom to answer Jesus' call to be disciples. Just like the twelve that he called so long ago, Jesus is also coming alongside us in the middle of our busy lives and work. He looks each one of us deep in the eyes. He sees us. He knows us including the parts that we try to keep hidden. And he says this, two simple words, follow me.
there's only one way to respond to that sort of an imperative command. Yes. Our yes goes beyond conversion. It affects more than our vocation. And it is not tarnished by our failures. Our call is not hampered by our past mistakes, by our former blasphemies, our ignorance, our persecutions or aggressions. Actually, we carry the scars of those consequences of our sin with us. But unlike before, we do not continue to suffer under the weight of guilt and shame of our past. Those things become our story. Not hidden, but shared as testimonies. As testimonies of what God has done after we stopped all of our doing. In 1 Timothy, Paul bears his scars for us to see. Not sheepishly as an excuse that he's not good enough to represent Christ, but as proof of who Jesus is. And so as we read 1 Timothy this morning, we see that Paul knew the great grace that he received when he saw truth, and it changed him forever. But what about the fate of Mikhail Kalishnikov? The gunmaker with a guilty conscience. What do you think became of his remorseful letter? When he recognized God's grace in his life, when he recognized God's truth, did he receive that amazing grace? When Christ met Mikhail Kalishnikov in paradise on December 23rd of last year, was it with a stern fatherly expression that said this, you could have done better? Or did Jesus say, welcome my son. Enter and rest. The time of toil and guilt is over. There is grace enough for you. There is grace enough for Mikhail Kalishnikov. And there's grace enough for you too. Amen.